Welcome to 5 Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books in some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine or culture. The French Revolution ushered in the implementation of a new political philosophy, liberalism. Liberalism had been developing for several centuries, particularly during the Enlightenment. The Gospel and the Catholic Church were out as the foundation of the social order, reason, sealed off from revelation and classical realism, was in. Churches and organised religion would be treated as private associations. Government would purportedly maximise and safeguard the individual's freedom of conscience and choice. In short, liberalism and Catholicism stood in opposition and were on a collision course. On the one hand, liberal governments and movements in Europe and Latin America set about dismantling the remnants of Christendom, not only removing the church's privileges, but often suppressing its legitimate freedoms and institutions as well. On the other hand, Catholic political thinkers disagreed about how the church should respond to these radical social transformations, while the popes tended to favour monarchies over republics. Studying the 19th century conflict between Catholicism and liberalism is important for understanding the historical background of modern Catholic social teaching, and also for understanding some ongoing debates. In this interview, Dr. Darry Taylor discusses his pick of the five best books in this area of church history. Dr. Darry Taylor teaches humanities at Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida. He earned his PhD in British history from the University of Kansas. He also produces a podcast, Controversies in Church History, which dives into important and sensitive issues in the history of the Catholic Church. Dr. Taylor, welcome. Thank you. What would you add to the preceding introductory synopsis of the 19th century conflict between church and liberalism? Uh, not a whole lot. That's a good introduction. The, probably the one thing, the other thing to note about all this, because you have all these political revolutions and you have liberal political thinkers um, you know, advocating, they're not totally the same thing, but liberalism, anti-clericalism kind of go together in the 19th century. Um, one is the Industrial Revolution, because that really alters the social order and it's what's it's what emancipates the the middle classes and liberalism especially in continental europe is the sort of it kind of is a revolutionary creed it's meant to overthrow in many ways the dominance of the church uh in things like education and, and political life um but also the second thing about liberalism in the 19th century is that there is a, a difference between the sort of anglophone if you're thinking of Lockean uh, liberalism individualism and uh, continental in, uh, liberalism, and I say that because I'm an American, and I didn't, I never had, I didn't know a whole lot about, uh, you know, about the continental version growing up. So you have, I think you have a more maybe irenic view of it. It's a lot more aggressive and a lot more hostile to the church, really. Um, it's hostile to the church in the Anglophone world as well, but like it's, <laughs> it's existential for the church in the 19th century. I don't think most Catholics know about that. And there are many definitions of liberalism, some focus on the original impetus for the development of liberalism, others on its <laughs> underlying ontology, still others on the political or economical institutions it advocates. What definition do you employ and why? And is this the church's working definition of liberalism? Yeah, the my definition is probably at this point a lot closer. I'm not a materialist, but it's probably closer to Marx. I say I do see real liberalism as a revolutionary ideology. To me, and I, I studied you know a lot of Locke when I was in graduate school. I don't really see him as a, a full-blown liberal. 
I, I know individualism is the big part of it for a lot of people in the Anglophone world, but to me, it's the ideology of this ascendant middle class and its desire to transform, you know, society according to its own, you know, self-interests. And uh, as far as the church goes, the church tends to see it in terms of a movement that wants to emancipate society from any sort of supernatural or perceived supernatural authority. That seems to be the definition. I actually don't think there is one definition of it, even among scholars of the church. I think there's it's so various, liberalism is, um, particularly in you know what you say liberalism's for, because that's where things break down. There's several different liberalisms. Maybe the biggest thing is they want that emancipation from the church's authority, from any sort of supernatural authority is probably the best definition of it, I think. The church lent more support to the Christian democratic movement following World War II. Some also took the fall of the Eastern Bloc in Europe in 1989 as a confirmation of the superiority of liberal democracies and of their compatibility with Catholicism. But over the last decade, a growing number of Catholic scholars have challenged this view and defended alternative readings of the church's social teaching. Are the current debates in Catholic political thought a repeat or a continuation of 19th century disputations? They're definitely related. Um, they're definitely related. They're, some of these arguments, yeah, they, they kind of go back to you know, the 1830s um, with people like the Abbe de Lamanet. Lamanet is the biggest, the most important person to know in this debate, actually, if you're talking about the internal like discussions in the church, what do we do? Because he was the founder of the, the first person to advocate, okay, the church needs to give up its privileges, needs to give up its attempt to monopolize you know, things like education and go with a, a separation of church and state so it can influence society. And um, I believe he's the count, I believe he's the founder of the phrase Catholic liberalism. And that's what that meant in the 19th century, uh, a peculiar Catholic version of it. And to get on board with, you know, democracy and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'd say there's a, there, there definitely, there's definitely a con continuity there. There's also differences, obviously, after the Cold War or the ascendancy of the United States, all these things are different from the 19th century. But it's definitely, there's definitely, it, this is a long debate. Uh, it's been going on for a while. So yeah, I think it was definitely, it would really help a lot of people to know this background. Regarding the interpretation of Vatican II, Pope Benedict XVI distinguished between a hermeneutics of discontinuity and rupture, and on the other hand, a hermeneutics of renewal in the continuity of the church. That is not always easy. To sum the continuity between Vatican II and the social majesty of the 19th century popes, I'm thinking of Mirari Vos, Pantacura, the syllabus, Immortali Dei, is not so apparent. This is obviously too vast and complex a question to broach satisfactorily here. Nevertheless, you have some general thoughts on the matter. Uh, yeah, you can, you can, that's, that's a difficult question. You're talking about something like Dignitatis Humanae, where that's the most apparent discrepancy. And quite frankly, I'm not a theologian. I don't know how you do that because they look for all the world like they conflict. Although there is continuity, though, um, there is actually there's kind of both. That's the problem. Um, there's an apparent look up break there, but there is a continuity in the sense that um, um, there's still the desire of the church to influence society. It's more like how you do it in terms of this is again. I go back to Lamanet. This is the idea. Lamanet was actually he's one of the great ultramontanists earlier in his life. He 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 wanted society to submit to the pope. He just thought if you did it only through non-coercive means, then it would be almost happen automatically. And it's in a weird way. You mentioned the, these debates we're having. This is still kind of the same debate. There's still this sense that 
um, you know, what level, if any, uh, of coercion is actually, you know, illicit in terms of, um, you know, modern society. Can there be, you know, can the, because that's really what goes back to is, okay, if the, the Catholic Church is the true faith, it's the true religion, does that give it any sort of rights over society? And that seems to be where the debate is. And I don't think that's ever been cleared up. Is my take on that? I uh, I did a I did an episode on Dignitatis Humanae on my podcast, and I I was I think I think you can reconcile. I think there is you can say it's continuous, but the church have to do a lot of work before they can make that clear to people because it's not clear at all looking at the documents. The first book on your list is Volume Eight of the History of the Church, that was edited by Hubert Yedin author of the definitive history of the Council of Trent. This volume written by Roger Abert, Johannes Beckmann, Patrick J. Korish, and Rudolf Lill is entitled The Church in the Age of Liberalism. It focuses on the period between 1830 and 1870. Is this the crucial period of the 19th century church's engagement with liberalism? And what makes this study a good overview of the period and the issue? Well, and just when we say in general, the series is magnificent. Uh, you mentioned Jadan, the the great you know historian. It's just a really great overview. It's very detailed. I mean, it's really long and detailed. It's almost like a reference in some ways, but it's just comprehensive. It covers about all of the one thing it probably doesn't do is cover Latin America that well. Um, but everything else it kind of gets in there. It focuses on Europe, and the reason why that's the formative period. It calls it the Church in the Age of Liberalism because that's when. You know, liberalism becomes a full-blown, it already is, but it becomes dominant on the European stage. It's when Lamanet in the 1830s makes his bid to try to, you know, convince the popes. You mentioned Mirati Vos, that actually is kind of a condemnation of that idea, but try to convince Gregory XVI to, you know, embrace, you know, um, uh, religious liberty and stuff like this. And um, ends with the First Vatican Council, that period. It goes up about 1870 in that, in that era, because that's kind of the... Well, three things put an end to that that attempt by Lamanet is one, this Vatican Council, right? It, it tends to reassert the church's authority in strong ways. But then the issue becomes moot because these liberal governments triumph. The Resorgimento, of course, gobbles up the papal states. The Third Republic, an anti-clerical republic, comes to power in the 1870s in France. And so it doesn't become a moot question, but it kind of kills and blunts that the thrust of at least Catholic liberalism and uh, establishes the dominance of the modern state. Uh, and it's and again, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's really great on the background of both, you know, cultural, intellectual ideas, but also social movements. Um, talks about the revival of Catholicism in the mid 19th century, which there is in France and in Germany and elsewhere. And so it's uh, it really is. I, I think it still is probably the best overview of that period. The second book on your list is Bernard M. Reardon's Liberalism and Tradition. It focuses on Catholic thought in 19th century France, from Joseph de Mestre to Maurice Blondel and Alfred Loisy. Why are the different currents of 19th century French religious thought so important? And what light does Riordan shed on those debates? That's a great question. Uh, it's important because, and this is, again, something people of my generation or younger, up until part of the 1960s, when it basically collapsed in many ways, any sort of intellectual influences in the in the French church tended to get into the universal church. It was that influential. France was kind of the epicenter in some ways of the of the Latin church. And so these currents of thought affected everything in the 19th century. And it's hard to overstate, I'll go back to it, Lamanet, it's hard to overstate his influence. He really influenced a lot of people. And uh, Reardon's great because he it's a it's a deep dive, chronologically speaking, from even just the beginning of the century with the 
the uh, French uh, thinkers who in the aftermath, you know, during the restoration period in France, like the Mestre, uh, de Bonald, those sorts of people who influence Lamanet. Uh, and then Lamanet and his influence, and there are multiple other different streams of what you'd call Catholic liberal thought, things like ontologism, uh, traditionalism, which is a weird thing to think about, but the, you know, the sort of a form of fideism where the idea is the only knowledge you can have about religion comes through tradition, so it denies the role of reason, things of this nature, all the way up through the end of the 19th century, and you have this turn within Catholic liberalism, um, trying to oppose positivism, especially in France. This is, you know, of course, Comte, but people like Blondel, and that sort of feeds into um, the, uh, the modernist period. So it's, it's, it's really well done, especially on the background on Lamanet influences, uh, highly recommend that one. Uh, your third entry is a collection of essays edited by Christopher Clark and Wolfram Kaiser, Culture Wars, Secular Catholic Conflict in 19th Century Europe. As the title of the introductory essay suggests, there was not just the Kulturkampf of Bismarck's German Reich, but a series of culture wars going on in 19th century Europe. Um, what would you have to say on this, on these culture wars in general? Well, in general, it's just how widespread they were. Like you mentioned the culture comp. Most people know about that, but I was not aware of the, again, really the violence. <laughs> there is a violent conflict between these emergent liberal states and the church in Spain. That's where the term liberal comes from. Uh, liberales was a group of people who wanted to emancipate the, they wanted to get the church out of politics, effectively, get rid of, uh, reduce its privileges and so forth. And that flares up throughout the 19th century. It's the prelude really to the background of the deep history before the Spanish Civil War in the 20th century. Uh, everywhere, really, Belgium, the Netherlands, um, pretty much everywhere you can think of in Europe. Uh, even even in, even, in, uh, even in England, of course, you have the reestablishment of the hierarchy there in the 1850s. The reaction to um, the First Vatican Council, there's a flare-up of the, this anti-Catholic feeling there, and so it's a it's a good introduction, and it's a it's a it's not a, a, a Catholic book, but it's a good scholarly introduction to this, and, and you know secular scholars are taking more notice of this recently, just how powerful it was. It was a real impetus for a lot of these things, and not just the Kulturkampf. Um, things and just to give an example, uh, the listeners, things like education. This, these were existential battles because, of course, liberalism tends to treat formal education as a panacea. And part of their part of their um, um, part of their drive to uh, to sort of nationalize education was to create, in some ways, you know, modern secular states that were, you know, unified, right, and modern nation state. But it was also to get it out of the control of the church. Uh, they both they, they both of the both of those entities knew. You know, look, you're conditioning the next generation of people, and so if you have control of education, you do that, and so that's why there are these really, really big battles over this for decades on end until basically education begins to be secularized at the end of the 19th century in the 1870s, and so it's good for capturing that. If you're not aware of that history, they're kind of good introduction to that. Whereas the preceding <clears throat> book surveyed culture wars across 19th century Europe, Michael Gross's The War Against Catholicism focus on the anti-Catholic imagination in 19th century German. Culture war, Kulturkampf, was a term coined in 1873 by the physician and left liberal politician Rudolf Fickroth. He coined it to describe the legislation introduced to break the social and political influence of Catholicism in Germany, a campaign to which he attributed, and here I'm quoting him, the character of a great struggle in the interest of humanity. Gross argues that the Kulturkampf was the culmination of anti-Catholicism in 19th century German, Germany. 
why were liberals so hostile to the church and is the Kulturkampf in Germany emblematic in some way? It is, and it it is, but it's not unique. I mean, again, like I mentioned in our previous book, this kind of similar things are going on elsewhere. It is interesting. It is it is kind of it is emblematic because it is kind of a mixture. This Kulturkampf of, on the one hand, you have this liberal sort of secularized anti-clerical movement, and it's this is something that in general in political terms, I I didn't know, I wasn't aware of. Um, is that 19th century liberalism is nationalistic. Again, today it's all cosmopolitanism, internationalism, whatever, globalism, whatever you want to call it. 19th century was not. And so you have these nationalists who hate the church for that reason. It's this big international body. It's like the United Nations or something in, in, in modern terms or something. But it also dredges up, um, I say it, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, the social upheavals following the Industrial Revolution and the Catholic revival in Germany dredge up older, more firmly Protestant anti-Catholic prejudices, prejudices against monasticism, you know, uh, tropes about nuns and stuff, People, women being kidnapped and taken to convents, get into popular, that's one of the things the author talks about there um, in that book. And they kind of feed each other uh, with the development of a, this is the first time you have, you know, big uh, mass um, media, you know, newspapers and stuff like this. And all that kind of feeds into an anxiety about nation building in Germany, which is, I definitely did not know before I studied this topic. Is that I, I guess I guess because you know it's called the German Empire, the German Reich. You figure the, the German state when it's when it's unified in 1871 is this big totalitarian authority. It's not. It's actually a federal government. It has all these different. You know, like Bavaria wasn't a kingdom, right? You know, a year before. So all these different entities have their own laws. In other words, they're worried about unity. And so one of the things that really frightens them about the Catholic Church is it seems like this international body that has, as they see it, like it remote controls all of its, you know, brainless <laughs> adherents. And they're afraid of that because they do have a, they have a, you know, a parliament, they, they vote. And if they vote in a block, they can really, they're worried about subversion. And so that's one of the things that really frightens a lot of these liberals. And the church, of course, is frightened of liberals. Why? Because these states are, I mean, literally, you know, the Resorgimento is just, literally the conquest of the church is <laughs> literally a sort of violent conquest of the church. They're terrified of these governments. So they naturally kind of want to like, you know, um, uh, they're, they're just naturally opposed. In that, but it, but it is in that sense, it's, it's kind of the, it is emblematic because that's the conflict, right? The nation almost comes to replace the church as the sort of, you know, whatever you want to say that the, nat the, the highest level of the, uh, uh, of uh, loyalty for these these uh, 19th century liberal nationalists, and so in, in that sense, it was an irrepressible conflict. For your fifth pick, the great crisis in Catholic American history, 1895 to 1900, we crossed the Atlantic from Europe to the United States. What is the crisis that Thomas T. McAvoy studies in this book, and is it relevant to Catholics today? Yeah, the importance of that book is that. Um, oh, there it is. Uh, the importance of that book is that it's the only scholarly treatment of the Americanist crisis, which if you look at a lot of modern, I've noticed a lot of theologians, contemporary theologians tend to treat it, tend to poo-poo it, like, well, there was no such thing as an Americanism. This was an overreaction. Uh, and that's actually true. If you mean there, there was nobody, you know, there was no, you know, manifesto about we're Americanists and we're challenging the church, but there was a tendency in the 19th, well, not just the 19th century, but about American Catholic history to take the United States as this sort of <laughs> uh, sort of ideal for the church. And it's particularly interesting because it shows the connections between what's going on in the continent and the United States, because the person at the center of this 
is Bishop John Ireland, I believe he's the Bishop of St. Paul, uh, Paul, Minnesota, who was actually educated in French seminaries by students and followers of, of the Abbe de la Monet. So there's a direct influence. And he is, again, he's not, uh, you know, and this is something that, again, you hear the term li- uh, uh, Catholic liberalism, you might be tempted to identify that with liberal Catholicism. Like liberal Catholicism today is mostly about, to be frank, sex stuff. None of that in the 19th century, but there is this general idea that the church needs to adapt to modern times, like democracy, you know, religious pluralism, stuff like this. And Ireland was a tireless uh, advocate of this. And so um, it shows the connections and, uh, and what happened in that sort of dispute. And again, it's the only one. He's, I think McAvoy is still the only person who's written anything on it. And um, But it shows you um, how this, and what's fascinating about the story is that the sort of American version of trying to adapt to modern society gets back into France because Isaac, Father Isaac Hecker was the founder of the Paulist in the United States. It was a religious order. Was, you know, he started a Catholic newspaper, stuff like that. Things that you know you're adapting to modern society. And his biography gets translated into French, and this gets in the middle of these conflicts in France, and that's what sets everything off. Um, it gets back to Leo the Thirteenth that way, and you have these fights in the United States between the bishops who are sympathetic with Ireland and those who are not. And that kind of, they urged Leo the 13th to say something about this, which he, he doesn't really, if you read Testum Benevolentum, which is his, the, the encyclical he issues on this. It's not, he doesn't condemn anybody by name. He doesn't issue any anathemas, but he notes these dangerous tendencies. And those tendencies were clearly there, by the way. There's, yeah, it's true. There's no formal heresies, but it's a part of this wider story. And I think uh, I think I think faithful American Catholics realize that tendencies is still here, but it's a good um, it's the best overview of that in a single book. Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way, more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound, or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.